Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadeen Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. This episode of Protect and Serve is brought to you by Flint House Police Rehabilitation, a charity entirely funded by donations from those in the police service and their families. It is with these generous donations that Flint House helps and heals over 3,000 serving and retired police officers each year, providing physical rehabilitation and critical mental health support. Flint House offers a safe, relaxed environment for serving and retired officers. Everyone is treated with care and respect, no ranks, no hierarchy. By Flint House's caring and experienced practitioners, whether a new recruit or an experienced veteran, there's a good chance you'll need their services at some point in your career. To get involved, to sign up or to learn more about this incredible organisation, please visit www flinthouse.co.uk or contact 01491 974 499. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And like I say every week, it's another guest, uh, well, it's another episode, another fantastic guest and uh, a chap who I met, oh, must be getting on for nearly two years now, um, at a summer fete. I was there with my wife, she was selling her art, and there beside me was a 
was a chap selling a book called Hidden by the Law. I was fascinated by this because obviously it's all things police related. We got talking. It turns out he was a retired chief superintendent from Thames Valley Police. And I'm very, very lucky to have him on the show this evening. Simon Bowden, welcome to Protect and Serve. How are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. And like I say at the start of all my episodes, we like to really rewind the clock and go right back to the beginning of one's career and ask the very simple question of why policing? Um, I think probably because my, my father was a police officer only for two years back in, you know, down in Wiltshire. And I was born the son of a police officer um, and spent my first um, couple of years of life living in a police house. Um, and my mum would tell me that um, she'd push me around in the pushchair and the pram. And every time I saw a cop walking past the helmet, I'd say, Daddy, 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 everywhere. Um, so it clearly cemented itself early in my life. Um, and then when I was at um, nursery school, I'd always rush to the box and be the first one to pull out the policeman's helmet and run around all day just wearing the policeman's helmet, probably because of my father's impact on me for those first two years of my life, I guess. Um, and then um, through schooling, I just became fascinated with 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 cops. Um, you know, there wasn't so many of the fly on the wall TV shows in in those days back in the seventies, I guess. But you know, every time I'd walk past a police officer, I'd, uh, I would just almost uh, look, you know look up to them. Um, I was. It, do you remember as a kid you get that feeling when you walk past a cop? Not exactly fear, but you you know what, what am I doing wrong? Well, you, know, you, you look at them and it was that position of authority that you always wondered what came with that. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it just fascinated me. And having tried a little, an early career in the civil service that mm. I really didn't enjoy, um, applied to the applied to the police, um, gone into Thames Valley, and, and never looked back. And had the most amazing career. You know, in my eyes, a very ordinary policing career. But when you go to parties and places and you talk to people about your career, they're always fascinated about what you've done and and and, and how it's turned out. You know. There are so many police services across the United Kingdom. You know, the Metropolitan Police is always the one that people go to immediately, so fondly known across the United Kingdom. Why Thames Valley? Is it because geographically what you knew so well had you tried for others? Uh, I did try for another one, actually. I, I went for Dorset first because as a 19-year-old applying, I thought, where do mm. I want to live? I would like to live by the sea. That would be lovely. Um, let's go for Dorset. <laughs> I used to go on holiday in Lyme Regis with my parents, and I thought, that would be great, be the police officer in Lyme Regis. And in a, in a crazy rose-coloured glasses kind of, uh, I suppose, moment in life, I applied to Dorset. They took something like 24 people out of 26 on the interview, all locally and two from elsewhere got in. I got turned down and drove from Dorset Police Headquarters directly to Thames Valley and put my form in. Because back in the late 80s, you could only apply to one force at a time. Okay. Um, and I drove from one to the other and had the forms in. And they said, oh, but your form says you just applied for Dorset, and you didn't get in today. I said, no, I didn't, and I, but I'm now I'm on Thames Valley. Um, and it went from there, really, yeah. It took six months from the application form going into being offered a job. Um, and I'd finally landed what was, I guess, my dream career from my youth. And, you know, I, I talk about regularly in most episodes the fact, you know, kind of what does this process mean for friends and family? Because it can have positive and sort of negative connotations with family. You know, you recall when you were a youngster not actually knowing kind of what this whole authoritarian position of policing was all about. You came from a policing family. I would have imagined that that transition, that announcement that you were going to follow in your father's footsteps was an easy one for you to make. Yes. Um, 
you know, my, my parents were incredibly proud, um, pleased that I'd been moving out and moving into a police house, I think, you know, because <laughs> in those days they were available, you could move into a house. Um, so I, 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 you know, I, I got I got married very young, moved into a police house very early. Um, I guess the bigger challenge was, um, you know, I, I grew up and did my schooling in Bracknell, ended up being posted to Maidenhead in 1988, which mm. isn't a million miles away. I'd asked for Oxford because I wanted a bit of a change, um, but I got Maidenhead, which meant that you know, Bracknell back in the day was a pretty dead town. Nothing happened there. So people would go out and go to Maidenhead mm. for the nightclubs and that sort of thing. So I regularly came across people I went to school with, um, bump into people that were probably acquaintances or friends, and they found out what I did, and then they weren't my friends anymore um, because they didn't wow. agree with it. Um, and and then there was the time I went to my first one of my first traffic accidents, and it turned out to be a guy I went to school with, and you turn up, you know, end up breathalysing one of your your pals and arresting somebody the, that probably only three or four years ago you were sat in the classroom with because um, I was only twenty, you know. So we talk about that process going through training college um, with Thames Valley. What was it like as a young 19-year-old walking through the gates of this sort of new, very mature environment where ultimately they're going to train you to deal with some of the greatest challenges that society can throw at human beings? What was that experience like? I think it's very different to what it is now. Nowadays, it's much more academic, um, much more kind of college-based and what, and what you probably see kids going to university and obviously, obviously there's more than one route into policing now you can go in with a degree you can um going as almost an, an apprentice but there back in in the 80s there was one way in you went to training school everyone joined as a pc um everyone did the same course and you had um a law exam every week if you failed three that was it you were out the so it was fairly you know the, the, the learning, parrot-fashing learning of the law and making sure you got your questions right in your exams every week was, was quite an emphasis. But also um, the instilling of the fact that you had um, a, a huge degree of power. Um, the minute you walked out on the streets, you, were, you could take someone's liberty away from them. So there, there was a lot of emphasis on the power you had and you shouldn't abuse your power that was bestowed on you by the Crown. Um, to make sure that you did the best job you possibly could when, when you went out on the streets. But I was there in a um, a cohort of probably 100 other officers, 50-odd um, from Thames Valley, uh, a load of other, some other forces in the region, all in Shotley, which was an old naval training base up in Suffolk. Um, from all walks of life, there, was, there were others like me that hadn't long been out of school and perhaps done an, another job or two I came from retail, I did a little bit of time with Waitrose beforehand. Others had come out of the military and had a, a, a much different uh, background to me, had served in the Navy or the Army um, and served abroad and perhaps even seen active action, mm. um, being older and you know, been through the Falklands and that sort of thing. So a real mix of a cohort of people. But you gelled and came together and, and came out the other end with the same kind of ethics and approach to policing i think it's inevitable but it's a question that i'm intrigued as to the answer to did you did you leave the training facility a different person um that's a very good question 
I don't think so. I think you came out probably um, more aware of what goes on in society. Mm. Um, because, you know, during the, the practical examinations and the role-playing and everything else that goes on, you're living, reliving the experiences of the trainers that have gone out on the streets before you, really, and they're, they're bringing their scenarios and things they've dealt with into mm. the classroom. Um, and you'll get people coming and give you lectures and talking about what the things you're like to see. And you start to realise just how big a job policing is and how, how broad the 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 um the type of incidents you're going to deal with and you walk out as a young pc green behind the ears at 20 21 years old and you're going to be thrown into you know violent domestic situations between husband and wives that no longer get on um drink drivers that want to do everything they can to get away from you and not lose their license um drug users that will steal anything from their relatives or um anyone just to feed their habit because of this awful habit they've managed to get themselves into. Um, and it's just a huge breadth, you know, um, and you, as a, as a young 20 year old, I don't think you really know what else goes on in society beyond your little bubble you've lived in up until that point. You deployed, you were stationed, I should probably really say shortly after graduating to, to Maidenhead between 88 and 93. And we talk about those challenges of policing, as you say, it's a very broad vocation in, t- in terms of the different types of scenarios that you're presented with to try and resolve for people. And you don't know how you're really going to react to them um, outside of the training world until you're faced with them firsthand. And one of those different, one of those particular scenarios is dealing with incidents of trauma and, and, and death, something's not mm. natural to us to deal with. How was that part in terms of that early sort of graduation and, and, and hitting the road? dealing with those sort of scenes how did you manage those emotions and sort of be able to obviously have family to support yeah i think your support network is really, is really network is really important um and having a you know a father that albeit had only done two, two and a half years in the police but had seen a fair bit back in the 60s um we talked about the sort of things I'd like to be seeing and the things I'd be coming across. So there was a bit of expectation around it. You knew that at some point you were going to go to a fatal traffic accident um, and it's going to be pretty grisly. You knew you were going to go to suicides. Um, you knew you would probably at some point come across a murder and be uh, at the scene on the scene watch or or maybe even the first deployed to the incident. Um, so there was a degree of expectation which helped to balance the... the the, I guess the shock um, of what you were dealing with. But then there was also, I think, a need to separate work from home. So the work stuff became just work. And the way I looked at it was, if I was at a an incident that was pretty horrendous, the incident would be worse if the cop wasn't there. Mm. So my presence was helping somebody. And that's kind of how I kind of positioned it in my head. Um, that if I wasn't there at the scene of the accident where somebody was seriously injured and had a lot of pain and coordinating the traffic or getting the ambulance to the scene and that sort of thing, um, then they'd be in a worse in a worse state. And there was nothing I could do to prevent that from occurring. So you kind of offset the the shock with that. Um although others that I joined with left quite quickly and I think of the 49 odd that were on my course by the time I came to the end of my career something like 26 had seen the full 30 years and the rest had gone um, for various reasons throughout the career some very very early because they they couldn't deal with 
that shock of seeing you know the worst side of people I think one of the greatest skills of policing is the ability to compartmentalise some of these incidents that you come across. Absolutely. And being yeah. able to process those and understand them and be able to, you know, and equally talk to your colleagues. You know, there's a lot been said about the canteen culture, but I think it's an important one in terms of we can have sort of those informal debriefs about what you've seen, what you've witnessed, and, you know, that some of the emotions and reactions are normal to some of those things that you're seeing. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, back in those days, most police stations at a bar which would be looked upon as being really inappropriate in today's society. But there was a bar there. The social club would pay the wages of the, um, the, the man or woman that would serve you behind the bar. And the bar would open up at two o'clock after an early turn in the week and you'd go up and maybe have a half pint, a pint before you finish work. Um, I was lucky enough to live close enough to cycle in. I'd ride into Maidenhead, finish the earlies. Um, my wife would be at work. Um, in those days and I'd stop and have a pint and we'd debrief um, and it wasn't literally that it would be a debrief and there'd be some really dark humour um, some quite um, candid discussions about what other people had dealt with in the day but it was a really important aspect of getting your head in the right place before you went home so you didn't unload everything with your family it had been unloaded between each other at work um, and again, on, on, on a late turn, the bar would be open, you'd pop into the bar. And I, I can't see that happening today because people live further from work. The, the public appreciation of um, a bar and a police station selling alcohol, I don't think would be palated today. Um, but by the same token, a whole shift wandering into a pub in half blues, having a drink mm. after work might also not be appreciated. I, I don't know. We, we live in a different society now. And I think one of the important facts to that is in terms of the strength of leadership and those around you identifying when there's particular issues and dealing with them earlier on rather than letting them sort of stagnate and get worse. And that kind of leads me on to sort of the next question in terms of your progression very early on to the rank of sergeant and, and seeing some of those sort of supervisors that were helping you to shape your career early on. Was that what kind of saw you get the bug or wanting to sort of fulfill a leadership position in, in, in being able to have an impact on people's lives very early on, very, very early on in their policing careers? Yeah, I, th I think I always say that every police officer is a leader because on the ground as a constable or even as a PCSO, PCSO today, when you're at an incident, you've got to lead the members of the public to the, yeah. uh, when you're there dealing with it. You have to be a leader, whatever rank you are. So every police officer has some degree of leadership capability within them. Um, but I, I craved responsibility. Um, I had a short stint at Maidenhead before I was substantially promoted as a, um, a temporary sergeant running the team. And I just, I loved, I loved that responsibility. I loved going along and supporting them at incidents, taking control and coordinating our response. Um, and you'd also pick up the incidents that affected individuals particularly badly and mm. take that moment to take them to one side and have a chat to them later on you know, in the canteen, in the bar after work, um, just to make sure they're okay and that, and that um, they had the right support network around them. Uh, and you know, later on in, in, in my career, the welfare departments got bigger and better at supporting people so that it wasn't down to just colleagues supporting each other. There was a, a proper mechanism to support colleagues and officers through difficult times. Did you see a change in the demographic and the busyness of sort of a place like Maidenhead from when you first started to when you were promoted at the rank of sergeant as you were progressing through the ranks? Um, I don't think so, so much early on. Um, 
But yeah, as, as I moved through my career, the demographics certainly changed. Um, and you saw a much more, certainly the, in the uh, East End of Berkshire, a, a, a much broader spectrum of society living in the same area. Um, people coming in from abroad, moving in from other countries, changing the cultural differences between the area. And that can bring about cultural um, abrasion between different groups that you end up and, and deplete those differences to try and get or uh, try and facilitate as much as possible people living in, in harmony or at least respecting each other's differences, um, which is which can be quite different, difficult. Um, and and the, the biggest challenge, I guess, was, was Slough, where the, you know, 260-odd languages are spoken, um, which gives you an idea of the huge breadth of, of the demographic there. And the fact that I think, I think now it's more than 60% ethnic minority living in Slough, which, which is huge. It's, it's probably the biggest or well, the broadest demographic of people outside London. Mm. 98 to 99, you're in Windsor, but in, and between the two ranks of sergeant to inspector, the first level of commissioned rank. Yeah. Obviously, Windsor, very famously well known for the residence uh, of, at the time, whilst you were there, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, now King Charles III. What's it like to work in such an area which has that prestige associated to it, quite a high level of tourism, um, but equally quite a, an interesting place to work, I would imagine? It's, it's hugely interesting because the, I forget the actual numbers, but you know, during the tourist season, it's something like tenfold the number of people in Windsor than actually live there. So you're you're policing people from the States, people from Europe, mm. people that are used to other kinds of policing approaches, not necessarily the UK approach. Um, and you're working in a town where the castle's policed by the Met. So inside the walls of the castle, you've got the Met police policing it. Um, so there's a degree of... Um, partnership that needs to be achieved there, working with another force. Um, you're working in a town that's got two um, military barracks that certainly in the in the 90s, um, when the serving soldiers would come back from a, um, a tour, they'd let their hair down. They'd be out in the town and they'd have a little bit too much to drink. Uh, there may be some fights would kick off between locals and the soldiers, and you, you were policing that aspect of things as well. Um, so you needed to work fairly closely with the military police uh, with the barracks themselves around slowly integrating them back into going out for a drink rather than just let open the gates and let them all out and you know, get get ratted in one evening. Um, so there's that aspect. Um, Windsor Maiden as a borough has got a lot of celebrity residents as well, um, which brings about its own challenge. Uh, I was at uh, in that borough when Ulrika Johnson was living in the area and she was being hounded by the press because of, you know, all the, the rumours and conjecture that go around a, a high-profile person and the media following they get. Um, so yeah, it, it's a it's a challenging environment because of the breadth of things you're dealing with. Um, and Windsor Maidenhead as an area has something like 350 policed events a year from Royal Ascot, the Windsor Horse Show, um, wow. the Windsor Triathlon, all those sort of things. So there's constant events going on that the operations team would would. Um, were planned for, but you're constantly losing staff to police those operations that are that aren't available on the streets at the same time. So there's a there's a balance to be had, um, and then there's the state visits that were reintroduced in the in the early nineties back into Windsor, not just London. So there's full loan state visits, um, 
uh, and all the all the the rule aspects of that kind of policing as well. Uh, yeah, hugely interesting, um, quite demanding because of the different styles of policing um, and the fact that because it's Windsor, it's quite in the spotlight. Um, and, of, and of course, later in my career when I was at Maidenhead, we had um, high-profile MPs. Uh, 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 Theresa May was the MP for Maidenhead, so that in itself brings about challenges. So following 98-99, your stint in Windsor, you're then promoted, or you've been promoted, but you moved to the substantive rank of inspector into Slough, which we've just discussed. Incredible demographic. It's probably considered to be probably one of the more challenging boroughs across Thames Valley's uh, footprint in terms of the challenges, in terms of not only the demographics and the multiculturalism, but equally uh, some of the issues which pop up from time to time. There's one area I wanted to reflect on in terms of some of the challenges which would face a commander and deputy commander and, and, and the operational teams is dealing with protest, it's dealing with the appearance of groups such as the EDL. How, mm. when, when you're dealing with, with, with such issues, how do you manage community expectations along with you know, allowing these people to whatever extent you can do to be able to get their messaging out but keeping equally the peace? Um, the, the way that Thames Valley approached it, and, and I believe still, still do, so um, the EDL came to Slough when I was the um, commander, so superintendent, um, back in, I think, 2014. Um, and that, that would have been the kind of event that as a silver commander I would have commanded and, um, and, and dealt with and all the planning for. But the thoughts behind putting a commander in charge of an event in the borough in which they work... Mm. Um, Brings about questions of it. If it goes wrong, how does that affect the standing of that commander in the area, the trust of that commander in the area? So we would give the commander those incidents to an, to another substantive um, silver commander somewhere else who would come in, plan the event, and deliver the event. The policing of the event would deal with any um, you know violence or problems with the demonstration or the march, that sort of thing. But you'd leave the local commander to be in command of community relations. So we would work during the build-up to the event, speaking to our uh, our known community leaders, um, key opinion formers in the borough, um, going to any pre-planned meetings, cultural meetings, where we could have the opportunity to talk about the policing operation, describe what's being done, so that we would manage the community's expectations um, deliver a no surprises approach, so they knew exactly how we were going to police it, um, and what how we would deal with violence if it if it occurred. Um, we'd advise them around how we'd like the community to respond to try and prevent any kind of counter demonstration. Um, all built upon the trust of being the local commander. Um, that way, when the event is delivered, if there is a problem and things were to go wrong. The commander that's dealing with it doesn't live with that um, legacy, I guess, as a commander in the area. The commander, can, the, the area commander, can then go back in and deal with the fallout of what's gone wrong if it were to go wrong. And I think that's a very wise, a wise way of doing it. Because mm. if you were to run it as a local commander and things were to go completely badly wrong, and then you're trying to deal with that fallout with your community leaders and your your key opinion formers later on, you've got to gain back a lot of ground to get back to the position you were in just before the event, let alone the fallout of, of what's, whatever's happened. 
Uh, and that's how we did it. So I would do all the community stuff. Um, and I'd use mainly my, my neighbourhood inspectors and take them along, make sure that um, those relationships were strong because there's no point just having a relationship with the commander. The important is having a relationship with your fleet officer, your PCSO, your neighbourhood sergeant, neighbourhood inspector. So you've got a relationship with policing as a whole in the borough, not just one key figure. For the To give our listeners outside of the UK some understanding, can, can you just describe to us kind of what the EDL is in terms of an organisation or a group, however we want to describe them, yeah. and what the purpose of them coming to Slough was all about? I guess, I mean, they're, they're a right-wing group. Um, their, their purpose, really, or, or their, their goal is to, I suppose in layman's term, keep, keep Britain white. Their, their view is that we don't want immigration. Um, if you're not a white British-born person, you shouldn't be here. Um, I mean, that's the extreme, the extreme end of their views. And they will go to places where that specifically isn't the case. So Slough is a large degree, uh, large Asian population um, from all walks of life, um, from all over the world. Um, you know, whether they're originally from Asia or not, the, the, the demographic of Slough is really broad and it has a real sense of community, despite that variation of, of, of um, ethnic background. Um, and the EDR will see that as a, as a threat to their objective of keeping Britain white. And they will choose those places like Slough, Bradford, um, to go and have um, what, they were, what they will describe as a peaceful demonstration. But all the um, the posts that follow on social media, the following they get from other people, will generally develop into an abrasive situation when they arrive. Um, so the police, as um, UK police forces have got a responsibility to facilitate peaceful protest. Um, so we can't stop them from coming. We can talk to the person organising the demonstration with the local authority and arrange where they may hold their demonstration, where they may hold their speeches. Um, we'll have officers there to make sure there's no um, sort of racist uh you know, racist speeches be it taking place, things that have gone beyond the mm. limit of the law, mm. uh, and try and keep things peaceful. But then you've got the local community who are, uh, who are feeling attacked just by the fact they're coming. Uh, so it becomes very, very... Um, it's a balancing act to, to enable the protest to take place peacefully and keep it peaceful, but also make sure the local community feel that they, they're able to um, say something against this movement. The English Defence League marched in Slough on Saturday against plans to turn Langley Village Club into a mosque. Counter-protests were held by groups including Berkshire anti-fascists and Sikhs against the EDL. The police were out in force to protect the public. Police estimate between 500 and 600 people were involved in the protests. Officers had to be resolute to avoid trouble flaring.
objects were thrown by protesters. Just want to sort of progress through your career here in terms of um, your appointment, your first kind of real senior leadership appointment within in a borough in two thousand three. Appointed um, Inspector Deputy Commander two thousand three Bracknell. What's the sort of you know you you take up your position, you sit behind the desk. What's the sort of pressures that you're facing and you're having to deal with at that sort of level? When does that kind of the realization, although there's you know there's a rank above you in terms of the structure, but there's an awful lot of pressure placed on you at an operational level to you know to make sure you get the right decisions right. Yeah, and I think back then it was it wasn't just the operational stuff. I was fairly comfortable with that, um, but it was it was at a time when policing was under some fairly immense pressure to deliver performance figures. Mm. So it was all about outputs to satisfy what the government effectively had asked us to deliver on rather than the outcomes. So the outcome would be a reduced level of crime, um, more community cohesion. Um, the, the things you can talk about in a qualitative fashion but the outputs were numbers. So how many crimes you did detected in that week? And it was literally week by week detections. And we've been monitored day by day to make sure we hit that weekly number. Um, to hit the force target for the force then to hit the government set target. Um, and that, that for me was, was kind of counterintuitive because you'd start searching for the most simple detection that would just give you that one number to push you over the minimum, um, which took away from the quality. So a, a simple detection, which might be a caution for um, somebody doing some shoplifting, would carry as much weight as a detection for someone who committed a burglary. It did become more, um, I guess, more detailed as, as, as time went on, and you'd, you'd almost get, you know, kind of, that burglary detections would be more important than a shoplifting detection. But in the early days, it was just literally numbers of detections. You had to hit a number, um, which meant you were scratching around for things that, that, that perhaps weren't the priority that they should have been. And how do you keep motivation up during periods where it is that it does feel like it's a bit of a numbers game? Because that's, that's the hardest thing, morale and motivation. Yeah, definitely. And it does hit morale and motivation because the guys on the ground, you know, there's not a police officer, I don't think, um, in the country that didn't join to do some good. Mm. Um, uh, and that's what they're there for. But when they're being chased to go and detect whatever they can, at the cost of perhaps doing some more quality work, then I think that does hit around. Um, and that was ahead of the times when we then went into a pay freeze um, and are limited to 1% a year. And, and morale starts to take a hit and people start to question whether they're in the right job or whether they could they could earn more working for a supermarket and they, and they move on. I want to so this during this whole period was there still a desire for you seeing sort of more exposure at superintendent rank and those ranks you know chief superintendent which is where you got to towards the end of your career was there still that appetite and hunger to progress further because you could make more changes you could implement maybe policies that you were more comfortable with. Yeah, definitely. Um and for me, I think what the bug I got was the partnership bug. So at 
Mm. Bratton was a deputy commander whilst we're chasing detections. We also had some more smart partnership-based priorities working with the local authority that, again, had come down from government but came in through the Crime and Disorder Reduction Partnership. And those were a bit more meaningful. So it was around burglary reduction, but it was also around reducing the number of priority offenders and reducing degrees of domestic violence and that kind of thing. And we did some early academic research that looked at um, the direct link between prolific offenders and the type of crimes they commit and the fact that many of them had, in their childhood, lived in households with pretty severe domestic violence. So we took a bit of a bold move and moved um, quite a substantial amount of partnership money and moved it across to reduction in domestic violence that in the short term wouldn't show us any difference. But in five, ten years, the the research was telling us that if we could reduce that domestic violence, we would reduce the amount of crime in the future because there would be fewer prolific offenders committing the crime. Uh, and that was proven. That worked. Um, and it was that kind of work that really pushed me on. Because I thought, yeah, if you can be in a position where you can make those kind of decisions and use academic research that's proven to deliver results, to make the future better. You're not dealing in a um, you know, a year-on-year or election-to-election-based response based on what the central government's asking policing to do. Um, you're dealing with an area where you know that in 10 years, maybe drugs abuse will be down or burglary will be down because you've reduced the numbers of number of offenders committing that crime. One of the things that always fascinates me about senior leadership, particularly in boroughs and commands where there's particular issues, you know, I've spoken to a number of guests who used to oversee sort of Lambeth and Brixton as boroughs quite, you know, sort of more challenging boroughs. And, and But I want to reflect on your time as the borough commander uh, superintendent in Windsor, which felt which which fell under the remit or under the area uh, for Theresa May, who is your local member and at the time is Home Secretary, and and this is during a period which we know we call austerity. There were police cuts, there were freezes on on budgets. It, it must be a challenging period in terms of having to manage morale with staff to support them to keep them sort of driving forward in your direction as to kind of the strategy that you're implementing for the borough and equally then having briefings and meetings with Theresa May at the time in her position knowing that the impact that her decisions are having on your troops. During the 2000s police strength grew fairly consistently during the last five years though cuts bit deep into the service and the number of officers started to drop down In the last parliament, service strength fell from 147,000 people to 130,000. More than one in every 10 officers gone. But this is Ms May's sixth outing here. And she made very clear she wasn't budging. Crime is down by more than a quarter since 2010, according to the Independent Crime Survey for England and Wales. This weekend, The Federation warned that spending reductions mean that we'll be forced to adopt a paramilitary style of policing in Britain. Today, you've said that neighbourhood police officers are an endangered species. I have to tell you that this kind of scaremongering does nobody any good. But 15% over two years is enormously deep. 
Well, the figure for the percentage cut that is going to take place has not yet been set because the comprehensive spending review hasn't been undertaken yet. So we need to have that comprehensive spending review. Then we will see what the what the savings are that are required to be made by different departments, including the Home Office and within that policing. But HMIC are clear that it is possible to make savings in police budgets in ways, for example, like better collaborative working between forces. How do you manage that? Those challenges? Do you keep them wholly separate, or do you do you have conversations which are uncomfortable? No, we kept them separate. Um, and and Theresa May was uh, mm. is a, a tremendous local MP, and she she represents her constituents very very well. Um, so Windsor Maidenhead is one borough, two towns, um, and she's the MP for the Maidenhead half. Um, and the first meeting um, I was due to have with her. She was coming to my office. Uh, her um, secretary was organising the meeting, and she said, "How long would you like?" And I said, "Well, I could do with an hour, really. It's my first meeting with her. I've, I've only just arrived. I need to understand her priorities as a local MP, her concerns, mm. and how she links into policing." And I was told I could have twenty minutes, and um, I spoke to the secretary and wow. said I, I can't have the meeting then because I can't do it in 20 minutes it either needs to be 45 minutes an hour or we, we need to rearrange it um, and eventually I got my 45 minute meeting um, she came in we sat down uh, and we were both very clear with each other that the relationship we had as local police commander and local MP was about the local issues um, and it would have been wrong of me to try and influence mm. I mean, as a as a superintendent, I'd have no influence on the national issues, but um, you know that that role would be the chief constable Sarah Thornton at the time, speaking to, to Theresa May as home sec at the time, uh, and that's that correct relationship. I guess what it gave me was an indication from her discussions about local issues how she might feel about the national things. So I'd get an inkling and an idea of um, her views on things, but we never strayed into talking about national issues. We never really talked about police morale as a sort of government, um, you know, the work of the government at the time. We did speak about police police morale locally um, and what might be affecting that. But we um, we kind of steered around the national issues uh, to, to keep it about Maidenhead, uh, which I think was, was the right thing to do. Uh, I think to do anything else um, would have been beyond my remit uh, and would have been wrong of me. And I think if she tried to gain information from a local small borough to inform national, it wouldn't necessarily have been a full national picture to, to help her. What One of the challenges that I assume you would have faced during that period, the 22nd of May, it's not long past, is sort of the anniversary of the tragic murder of Lee Rigby in London um, mm. and the consequences that incidents like that have on other communities outside of where they occur because of the demographic of a particular area. Threats to mosques is one example that I imagine would come as a result of that. Now they're highly sensitive matters which often your local members want to understand how we're going to support these communities in making sure they don't equally become victims of sort of retribution or retaliation we should say. How do you manage those sort of issues which are incredibly difficult? 
Police have arrested a tenth person following last week's death of the soldier Lee Rigby in Woolwich and say they are waiting for the two murder suspects to leave hospital before questioning them. But elsewhere, community tensions have been rising, with 193 anti-Muslim incidents reported since last Wednesday, including ten attacks on mosques, veils being pulled from the faces of Muslim women and families being abused in the street. Again, I think, um, like the issues in Slough, it was a case of getting in touch with and speaking to very soon your local leaders. Uh, there is a mosque in Maidenhead, um, just up the road from the police station, walking distance, uh, and they did suffer damage. Um, there was uh, uh, spray painting, I recall, um, uh, things left outside the mosque that would be offensive to Muslims, um, and there would be uh, a couple of local... Uh, attacks on Muslims leaving the mosque in the evening after prayer. Um, and Theresa May was very, very keyed into that. She knew that was happening. Um, we had dialogue um, over the couple of months after the, the, the Lee's tragic murder uh, about the local, the local impact. Uh, and in fact, we were both invited together to go and speak to the congregation at, at the mosque about um, the damage that had incurred. Uh, and fortuitously for me at the time, I had officers out looking for the offenders. And during my conversation with the leaders at the mosque, my radio was in my ear. And I got a call on a point to point on the um, radio system to say, they've just admitted it, we're charging them. So I was able to give a direct update to the leaders of the mosque at the time that we we got the culprits and they were being charged. Yeah, wow. Um, and, and that was, you know, it was very, very lucky that it happened at the right time. Um, but the the impact of that put about a, a, a real uplift in trust in the police in, in that environment, as far as I was aware. Um, you know, uh, uh, and it was lucky that you know I was there at the time when Theresa May was there when we delivered that news. It, it was um, you could you could see the relief on people's faces because they they were there concerned about what had happened at their mosque, concerned about a couple of attacks, and worried about it was going to escalate and get worse and. Um, you know, people were worried that there would be a murder because of the the feeling towards everyday normal law-abiding Muslims that had been that, that the hatred that had been brought about by some parts of the community towards those people because of the extremists that committed the crime against Lee. Do you feel equally the pressures when dealing with matters like that from senior officers, deputy commissioner, commissioner of Thames Valley Police, or chief constable? You know, that, that, that you, are you giving sort of regular briefings to very senior officers as to kind of how you're navigating this particular issue? Yeah, during any any significant incident, um, most forces will set up a gold and silver command um, to monitor the impact locally across their force area. Um, so every community in Thames Valley that had a Muslim community would, would would feed in to the Silver Command and then brief the Gold Command to make sure that the force had a good idea of what was going on across its area. And we'd monitor incidents in other forces to see if there was any other flashpoints that were going to cause uh, an uplift in public concern or an uplift in, in more hate-related crime. Um, so yeah, there was briefings all the time. I don't think I ever felt pressure um, because the briefings were the ability to make sure that the, the senior command knew what was going on to make sure they could then put the right resources in the right places to support you and your local command. Um, and, the, you know, this, whether it would be 
that incident and the aftermath that probably lasted six months for a while, you know, that six, that key six months afterwards where it was remembered um, by you know, the right wing community members that wanted to cause tr trouble um, or whether it be uh, following the riots in London in, when was that, 2011? Yeah, 2011, yeah. Where again, there'd be flashes around the country. Yeah, so you know, Reading, I, I was the silver command of that, the force, and Reading had flash, flashes of theft and looting overnight, so did Slough, and the force would run the same sort of, the same sort of response there. You'd have a, a silver command, a gold command, and you'd feed into the local areas and support those local commanders to deliver policing and keep things uh, under control. One of the um, biggest issues to... Uh, affect the UK in the last 12 months is the passing of Queen Elizabeth II um, and you've had the honour of taking part in the planning of her funeral and those arrangements during your period as working I believe as the superintendent in Windsor what's it like knowing that you took part in that what's the, the the sort of pressure that goes with that what is the sort of when you look back is 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 that something you look back at fondly that you've had a small part to play in what was one of the biggest policing operations this country has ever seen definitely um i mean that baton was passed between a number of people over the years and, and, and you know the media's reported widely on the fact that um the funeral had been planned for many many years and it was all planned in consultation with the palace, the palace led on it, and the policing side of it um, was significant. Huge policing operation in terms of security, not just for our own royals and attendants, but for all the dignitaries coming in from abroad, um, the heads of state coming to the funeral. So, that, and the, the potential, you, you didn't know where Her Majesty would pass. So there was plans for if she passed in Scotland, plans for if she passed in London plans for she passed anywhere else mm. in the country or abroad all those different scenarios were planned in to the utmost detail um and, and the plan would be revised and reissued every year from from london from buckingham palace um and i i think i did four maybe five years as the as the lead silver commander for thames valley so um looking after the the Windsor aspect, but we'd link in very closely with the Met to make sure our plans matched with the Metropolitan Police to make sure the operation looked the same so that when you saw the part of the funeral that took place in London, it didn't look drastically different to the part of the funeral that took place in Windsor from a policing perspective. It needed to look seamless. It needed to be respectful, but at the same time, have all the elements of security. Um, and But balance with policing by consent to make sure that everything went really, really well. And ideally, you couldn't see much of the policing. It blended into the background, which I think is what we what we achieved. Um, and then you pass it on. And I think everyone that everyone that, that had that command, that role for three, four or five years, you know you're working towards a collapsing time frame. You know mm. at some point the monarch mm. will pass away. You know that she was... 80, 85, 90, whenever, however, however old she was when you were looking after the plan, that it could be on your watch. So you did the best job you possibly could. Um, so we'd have various bronze commanders in charge of aspects of the planning, and you'd have deputies who, the, so that when those bronze commanders moved on or retired, the deputy would step in and take, take over and a new deputy would come on to make sure there was that, that uh, continuity. 
of command so that whenever it happened, everyone knew exactly what was expected of them and what had to be delivered. Um, because there's only one chance to deliver this, to, to facilitate such an immense, huge operation for the country. Um, and to, to get it wrong would have been awful. Um, so I, I, I had the, the privilege of doing hers and, and the Duke's planning. Which was, uh, and, and I watched it on television and you find yourself looking at aspects of it and thinking, oh yeah, they've done that right. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Or oh, they've changed that. That must have been changed since I've, I've had it over. Um, yeah, hugely proud to have been involved. Your promotion to chief superintendent um, in 2016 saw you leading on another national project in terms of communications. You, you stepped away from that operational role in terms of superintendent, in terms of borough commander. Was that, uh, you know, that period in terms of that next step up, was that somewhat of a relief that kind of the pressure of having to manage day-to-day community challenges had come to an end and you were moving on to a more sort of impactful role nationally? Um to a degree, um, I had my eye on the fact that I had two or three years left to go. And I was nothing less than in love with my career. I, I loved what I did. I enjoyed the on-call stuff. You know, I'd, I'd, you'd be on call overnight, back into work for seven the next morning, running the borough, back on, on call the next night, dealing with you know, um, authorizations for cell site analysis, and, uh, high-risk missing people firearms jobs that sort of thing and I, I loved that adrenaline I, I've really really enjoyed it um, but I'd seen other colleagues finish and drop off a cliff they go from that level of adrenaline and responsibility to retiring and nothing the next day and I um, mm. one of my my colleagues who had retired a few years before me said you, you need to look at gliding out um, and moving to something less operational so that you can you can kind of wean yourself off the operational adrenaline rush. Um, and the opportunity came up for promotion into, into the National Police Chiefs Council, working on the Emergency Services Communications Programme in the Home Office. And and I applied, I got it, um, and it brought about new pressures. You know, for the first three or four months, I continued with the on-call stuff. I continued to go in and do some um, pace covering, doing reviews in custody and that sort of thing. But as the job built, I wasn't able to fit that in, so... I had to move completely to this national role. And I found myself working with every force in the country, um, travelling over for meetings in Northern Ireland, going to police communications um, conferences in, in Copenhagen, trying to make sure that what we delivered for police, fire and ambulance nationally and the new communication structure that, and the methods of uh, radio communications moving to a, a digital format delivered what we needed operationally. And that was my job to make sure that it fitted operationally and that the the project managed by the Home Office didn't let down the emergency services and didn't fall short. Um, but the biggest challenges were the different views and opinions from the various forces across the country, because each one is its own kingdom. Um, and you'd have people, officers of the same rank from other forces who are adamant that you had to do A, B and C. Uh, and other forces would be adamant you had to do X, Y, and Z. And it was trying to bring the two together um, so that the solution that mm. was delivered was the best fit for everybody. Um, and that became the new challenge. It was negotiating and influencing with peers and other forces that um, had very, very different views and very different opinions on how it should be delivered. We we talk about um, 
you know finishing up careers and and moving on was it we were you ready in 2018 to move away from policing because it's not often a conversation we have about the departure and what those feelings are the emotions behind you know we talked about it off air almost sort of losing a relative because it's something that is very much in our dna it runs through our blood you know what was that departure Mm. like in 2018 for you very traumatic (laughs) um (laughs) yeah and my wife will tell you that i was pretty grumpy for at least six to 12 months um i missed it every day uh i dreamt about the job and things I've dealt with or, or complete things I've never dealt with that just came into my head in my dreams for probably a year. Um, and it was akin to a bereavement, I think, for me. Um, and I'm now, I'm now doing work with the with NARPO, uh, National Association of Retired Police Officers, locally in Berkshire, um, where I, I talk to officers that are about to finish and kind of get them ready for it, really, because... Some are ready to go. Some have had enough. They just want to leave and they can't wait for it. Mm. Others are in a position where they've reached retirement age. They may be on the old pension scheme and staying isn't really worth it. Um, they need to move on and they find it very, very difficult. Um, and others think they're ready to go and they leave and it is very, very difficult. You can't really, you can't answer how, how you respond to it, I don't think. Because um, you go from having a tremendous amount of power um, a degree of standing in the community, particularly if you've been local commanders or, or a local you know, naval inspector, to being just another Joe Bloggs, and that can be quite difficult for some people. Mm. And I found it quite—I found it quite difficult. I went and worked for, for um, I worked for Thames Water for a while as head of their incident management, re- trying to reshape their response to significant major incidents. Um, and you find yourself a much smaller cog and a much bigger wheel. Um, and less able to influence big change or um, less listened to because you haven't got the history of being in that occupation and that trade, that business for 30 years. So you come as a new person uh, and you end up working with people that have got different ethical views on things and people that don't like the police at all and just see you, oh, the cops arrived. Um, it was quite difficult, yeah. So uh, I did that for seven or eight months and decided it wasn't for me and packed it in. <laughs> but so, but you found this love of writing. Um, as You know, as we spoke about, that's how you and I met each other in terms of, you know, being side by side at a at a, at a village fete in Cheveley, if I remember rightly. And you, you, your first book, uh, Hidden by the Law, what, was, that, was that more of a cathartic process to keep that sort of attachment to policing in terms of being able to write about something you were so familiar with? I think so. I'd, I'd always wanted to write a book since about 2013 and never had the time. Um, didn't quite know what to write about because it's very difficult to decide to write a crime novel when you're in the police, mm. um, particularly you know, 10, 15 years ago because you'd have to submit it to professional standards and make sure they'd have to make sure everything was fine. You weren't giving away little, you know, trade secrets and writing things you shouldn't write um, or bringing a force into disrepute or anything like that. Um, but the, the predominant reason was I didn't have the time. Um, and in 2021, uh, I, I woke up in the morning mid, mid-pandemic on New Year's Day and said to my wife, I'm going to get that book done. I'm going to write the book. Um, and she was like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, get on with it. Um, and I wrote yeah, that morning what I thought was going to be chapter one turned out to be something like chapter 17. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I was originally going to write a book about a guy that had retired from the police um, and about what happened afterwards. But then I decided to actually take it back and weave a kind of a, um, an adversarial relationship between him and a, and a big-time crook that haunts him through his career, which is what it turned into, and takes him up to retirement and then beyond. So the subsequent stories about Seth Hannon will be post-police in a new crime-fighting team within the Home Office. Um, and it, yeah, it, it gave me the release to, in my head, sit in a policey world, um, take my experiences of 30 years and cram them into um, 500 pages um, with a good good scattering of fiction as well. So you, you can think of an incident and then you, you build it and blow it up and link them together whereas they're not linked together in real life, that sort of thing. But I, I just found it, um, yeah, it was very cathartic. It was relaxing. It kept me really busy because I was writing for eight, nine, ten hours a day. Um, and I learned new stuff. You know, I learned about marketing books. I learned about setting up my own publishing company to publish books. And I've published a couple of other books since um, for, for other colleagues that have written. Um, I just really, really enjoy it. Um, and I enjoy it now, in the position of life I'm in now, it gives me the enjoyment that, to a degree, policing gave me in the past, and and that's what was missing for me. That was I was I didn't know what I was really after the police because people always ask what you do. And I think probably we hang too much on what we do as opposed to who we are. Uh, yeah, so yeah, it, it's given it's given me that sense of purpose again. Although I'm way behind on book two, uh, book one's currently being turned into an audio book. Book two is about a third of the way finished, and I, I, I need it out by the end of the summer or by certainly by Christmas. One other part of your there's two things I want to talk about in terms of life outside of policing, and very recently um, you, you, it was obviously an announcement by the Flint House Rehabilitation Centre that you were part of its sort of advisory. You're a strong advocate for that institution. I think for the purposes of my audience, which is relatively large now, can you tell us a little bit about Flint House and how important it is to sort of our policing colleagues? Yeah, it's, Flint House is a rehabilitation centre um, for police officers and now also for retired police officers, um, predominantly to deal with officers that suffer injury um, or are mentally uh, ill during service. And that injury, the majority of the time, it's injuries through work. Um, so if you, you, know, you end up in a in a car accident or you're assaulted um, it gives you a place to go to get intensive physiotherapy or um, intensive degrees of um, uh, uh, sort of mental intervention if you're mentally ill uh, and support and they provide a service that's second to none. I, I, I went there after a non-policing injury where I crashed a mountain bike and shattered my scapula into three pieces um, and what they did in Two weeks would have taken two and a half, three months on the National Health. Wow. Um, you know, it was physio twice a day, every day, uh, hydrotherapy pools, pools gym. And uh, you pay every officer that, that subscribes pays uh, a small fee monthly into the charity. And that gives you the opportunity that if, you're, if your injury fits what they can treat, you can apply to go there for, for two weeks. And it's residential. Um I'm lucky enough that it was in Berkshire, um, so it was easy, easy for me to get to. Uh, and yeah, and they, they fixed my shoulder and saved the force 
lots of money. Whilst I'm not there, someone's got to act up. I was at command at Pracknell. Somebody had to act up whilst I was off, which means someone acts up behind them all the way down. And then mm. the, the PC that's acting up as a sergeant is missing from the front line. So it costs you a position somewhere in the line and it costs you the money and all that acting up plus paying your wage. So they provide a service in terms of getting you back to work quicker and you get back fitter and healthier. You get a full health check whilst you're there as well. Um, and, and yeah, I'm an ambassador for Flint House now and they are, they provide a service of second to none. Uh, and I would recommend every officer I meet to pay into the, the, the fund that gives them access to that facility. Um, and, and now if you're a retired officer, you can pay a small sum. And, and if they've got room, serving officers come first and you're suffering from an injury or an ailment, you can go and, and get a week's worth of, of treatment there as well. I think it's a week. Um, or even going on, on, on a daily basis for this physiotherapy. Um, and the money you pay in helps treat serving officers. In one word, invaluable. I've paid into it all my service 21 years now, and I never ever thought I would need it. But when I did, crikey, did I need it. I didn't know what to expect here. I'd heard stories about it, but the facilities here were, were just everything and more to what I needed at that time. Uh, I'm always intrigued to, to understand how in demand those types of organisations are with police officers serving who are dealing with and trying to overcome the challenges of mental health. Is that something that they're dealing with quite regularly? Definitely now. Um, when I went... Uh, with my shoulder uh, back in 2011, the vast majority of people there were there for physical in injuries. Um, you know, there was a guy there that had, had his leg broken in a car accident, policing accident, um, and had the frame on his leg and everything else. There's very few that were there because of mental illness. Um, but when I was there on the ambassadors, um, the welcoming of the new ambassadors event uh, two or three months ago, yeah, I couldn't give you numbers, but there was certainly a significant percentage were there because of burnout because of the mental anxiety that's brought about by the things people deal with the things people see in the police um you know you see more death and um relationship problems and the bad side of life than most people see in the whole of their life in in a short period of your career um and that takes a toll on people um and it's it's good that that's finally being recognised, and that it's not just people that serve in the military abroad in in conflict that suffer PTSD and suffer from mental illness as a result of the things they have to deal with at work. Five years ago, I dislocated my ankle on my PSU medics course, which brought me to Flint House for physio treatment. But on the back of that, I also had a diagnosis of PTSD. I was nearly stabbed um, at 20 to midnight on New Year's Eve. And that always affected me for, for many years until I dislocated my ankle, which was a trigger, which brought on my PTSD. So I also came to Flint House for the mental health um, sessions as well, which was just amazing. The skills that Flint House taught me through the mental health, that if I'm getting anxious, I've now got a little toolbox that I can use and skills that can keep me on the, on, on the level. So you're not on your own. When you come here, you're with a, with a group of eight to ten other people that are also here seeking some, some help for, for mental health. So you gel quite quickly and the nerves are, are, are soon gone. And the mental health team, they just, they just relax you so much in the environment around here. It's just a safe place to talk. Finally, I want to bring up the successes 
of uh, your family. Your daughter uh, is an incredible athlete, something that you now get time to travel with and to focus on and to support on. You know, as police officers, our families sacrifice an awful lot because of the time and energy and commitment that we have to give to the community and ultimately to a job which really life sort of revolves around. It must Mm. be incredibly satisfying to be actively supporting and participating and encouraging your daughter in her successes, which only just recently were phenomenal in terms of her movement away from full-time work and into becoming a full-time athlete and I believe if I'm right coming third in the Netherlands recently she was third in the Copenhagen marathon yeah um so she she finished in a time of two hours 29 and 16 seconds which I think is the second fastest British female time this year and the wow. 26th fastest British female of all time um so she's she's on um a quest to get to the world championships, which needs another marathon and another chunk of time taking off. But yes, I mean, I was lucky enough, uh, I was the, on the old scheme. So I, I, I retired after 30 years. Um, I, I take a, I guess a more backseat role at home now. I do a bit of consulting. Um, I'd like to say a lot of writing, but not as much as I need to be doing to get the book finished. Um, and I do some voluntary work with, with Flint House and with British Cycling, which gives me the time to try and do my best I can to support my my, my children um, because I know that during my years in the police I probably wasn't around as much as I could have been because I was at work um, more mm. often than not or, or, or dealing with something that had happened which kept me at work longer than normal working day so it gives me the chance to to, to get to the things they do I, I still sometimes have trouble getting to them I don't get to all the races my other daughter is in a, um, a large choir down in Bournemouth and I don't get to all the shows and I, I, I still wake myself up for not being able to do it but I was lucky enough to go to Copenhagen um, and see her in that, that amazing performance and she, yeah she's given up full-time work to become a full-time athlete um, she funds it through uh, a very successful YouTube channel and through sponsorship um, deals to enable her to run full-time which in this country I don't think you can perform as a as an athlete, unless you can commit to it full time, you, you cannot do it in addition to a, to a job, not very easily. So rounding out a powerful crime thriller hidden by the law, a Seth Hannan novel by yourself, Simon Bowden. Where can our listeners obtain a copy of this book and how are your can you reveal to us how your numbers are and the success of book one has been? Yeah, I think I'm on about I mean, it's my own publishing company, Obelisk Publishing. Um, I'm on about 5,000 copies, so by no means a bestseller. It's the bestseller in probably in Newbury, maybe, at the moment. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm very pleased. I, I thought I'd sell about 50 or 60 copies to friends and relatives. Um, it's, it's gone. 5,000 is an incredible number of, of books. It's phenomenal. Yeah, for, for um, uh, my own publishing mm. company to, to do that is, is brilliant. Um, it's available on Kindle. Um, it's available on Amazon as hardback and, and paperback, and online on Waterstones, W. H. Smiths, all the you know, every, uh, every good, book, good every good bookshop, as they say, <laughs> uh, on mainly on online orders. Um, and the bookshop in in Hungerford's got a couple of copies on the, on their shelf. Um, you know, I don't do it to make a living. I do it to give myself the satisfaction of writing something that is that is good. It gets great mm-hmm. feedback. Um, it's been featured on a couple of radio shows, uh, and the, the feedback I get back from 
everyone that reads it, whether I know them or not, is is positive, which spurs me on to get the second one done. It's a hugely enjoyable pastime um, and one that I can do anywhere, which is again the bonus. I can I can go to see my daughter running Copenhagen and sit down and knock out half a chapter whilst I'm sat in the hotel room. Well, Simon, it's been a fascinating hour of discussion about your life in British policing across Thames Valley Police and then nationally as a Chief Superintendent and importantly I think demonstrates to probably our colleagues who may be coming towards the end of a 30-year career that you know sometimes you know the transition into sort of what we call the private sector isn't one that's always easy it's not always one that we're ready for in terms of losing what we consider to be our identity I certainly struggled with losing kind of what it meant for me as my identity policing was me it defined me and it took me a while to realize that it didn't actually define me it certainly made me who I am today and I'm incredibly proud to achieve what I achieved and certainly as are you but equally importantly that there are so many opportunities outside of policing for us to undertake and to celebrate Um, but I all I can say is thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast on behalf of my my team here at Protect and Serve, thank you ever so much for your service over 30 years across many different areas in policing, some incredibly challenging, and for, for, for coming out the side incredibly successful as you have done. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.